We're looking at uh, the book of Colossians, working through it, and uh, we're going to have two more sermons after today, and then we will uh, start a new series for the Lenten season, and I'll talk more about that as we get closer. But we are at the point in the book of Colossians where the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to a young church in Colossae, uh, dealt with a lot of the teaching issues. He was making sure that they understand who Christ is and what he's done for them. And now he's getting into some of the practical elements and giving them instructions on how to live under the lordship of Christ. So this is where we are this morning in chapter 3. So today's passage gives us a great description of the Christian life. So if you're wondering this morning, how do I live as a Christian? How do I even see what's my framework for understanding my life as a Christian, if you are a Christian. Uh, this is a great passage to go to. And according to this text, the life of a believer consists in rejecting the old and embracing the new. We are to kill sin and to cultivate holiness. We are to take off and put away sinful attitudes and behaviors, like a piece of clothing, and we are to put on, like another piece of clothing, Christ-like attitudes and behaviors. It's important to notice that the process of spiritual growth as a Christian has both the negative and the positive dimensions. We are to reject something and to embrace something. We are to put something off and take and put something on. We must simultaneously fight against sin and fight for holiness. Some theologians, if you read in Christian theology about these matters, they would use words like mortification and vivification. So mortification is the killing of sin. Vivification is the life that comes through Christ. Both aspects are important. There's the negative and then there's the positive, and we'll deal with both. In our text, verses 5 through 11, uh, the apostle largely focuses on mortification, on rejecting sin and killing sin. And verses 12 through 17... He focuses on vivification or the positive aspects of our life with Christ to help us process and apply this very rich passage together. I've divided the sermon into three parts to give some semblance of logical flow to our time this morning. Three parts. We'll talk about the new birth first and as a prerequisite for the Christian life. Secondly, we'll talk about the new self the embrace, embracing the new identity in Christ and the tension with the old identity that we have. And finally, we will talk about the new community where this Christian life takes place. Okay, well, let's start with one word in verse 5 as we talk about the new birth. And that word is therefore in verse 5. Therefore. Easy to overlook easy to not pay any attention to, and yet I think that word is crucial to understanding a lot of this passage. When Paul uses a word like that, or any biblical writer uses a word like that, they're signaling to us that what is to come is connected with what they have just talked about. It's a connector. What Paul is saying is, I'm going to give you a lot of practical stuff now, but I'm basing all these practical things on what we've talked about on the doctrinal instruction that you've already received. In other words, he's saying, this is who Christ is, this is what he's done, therefore live this kind of way. 
there was a, an old Methodist uh, pastor, Samuel Chadwick, early 20th century, and he recounts a conversation with one of his people from his church who was a converted burglar, was a criminal converted to Christ, became part of the church, and this man said, I'm reading Romans for my devotions and my private Bible study. And Pastor Chadwick said that, well, you must find it hard. Some parts of Romans are difficult to understand. And the man said, yes, it is difficult. But I stumble on till I come to a therefore, and then I get a blessing. And Chadwick said, this man has grasped the logic of Paul's writings. That's the logic. Paul is always going to give us this is who Jesus is. This is what God has done. You need to understand these, these big pieces. And now, therefore, now live in reality of that. So we don't just use doctrine as for doctrine's sake, nor do we just jump to practice and overlook doctrine. Those are connected. And so we understand who God is and what he's done, and then we apply it in our lives. So this one little uh, word, therefore, is very, very important to us. The practical instructions that follow cannot be divorced from the doctrinal declarations of the previous sections. Paul tells us to kill sin and embrace a new kind of life. Why? Because of what Jesus has already done on our behalf. So, for example, Paul has already told us that Jesus reconciled us to God in his body of flesh by his death. That's 122 in Colossians. We have been filled in him. 2.10. We have been buried with him and also raised with him. 2.12. We who were dead in our sins, God made alive. He made us alive together with him. 2.13. He canceled our record of debt to God by nailing it to the cross. 2.14. He triumphed over our enemies. 2.15. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. 3.3. 3. All of that is in the background. And then Paul says, therefore, live this way. So we have to keep in mind everything he already told us, and then on the basis of that, we live the Christian life. Now this passage, because of that, because of what he's declared, only makes sense to us and is only applicable to us if we have experienced these realities that he's been talking about. If our record of sin has been canceled by the nailing of it to the cross if we have been made alive by the holy spirit in other words there's no new life without a new birth if what you've read so far in colossians the two chapters that we've gone through and you read that and you're saying this is not about me well the rest of the book isn't going to be about you either you have to experience the first two chapters in a personal experiential way to be able then to live the Christian life as it's laid out for us in the next two chapters of the book. If you have been changed by Christ's death and resurrection, now, therefore, now you can live as a changed person. But if you haven't been changed by Christ, at best, the rest of the book is just nice things to aspire to. They will have no power in your life. John Owen, a great theologian, uh, wrote a book on the mortification of sin and sanctification and things we're talking about this morning. And he said, to kill sin is the work of living people. 
When people are dead, as all unbelievers, the best of them are dead, sin is alive and will live. He says that if we are to engage in this Christian life, we must be brought to life by God. We only deal with sin as living people, those who have been spiritually transformed and have been given a new nature. And only then we can be effective against sin. But if we come to sin in our old nature without any help from God, we really can't do very much against it. Owen also says, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. There's no death of sin without the death of Christ. If the death of Christ has not had an effect on you, you can't kill sin in your life. Unless the death of Christ has been appropriated by faith, unless we have been brought from death to life by the Spirit of God, we have no business of living the Christian life. Now let me, just as a, as a personal experience, I, I read a good amount of books on the spiritual life, on the Christian life, for my benefit, for your benefit, hopefully. And I am surprised how many of those books on the Christian disciplines, on spiritual growth, don't start with the idea of the new birth. I, I take a, and, and they're helpful. Those books are really good. But if you're not careful, they will give you the impression that by following these disciplines, by ordering your life in this way, by seeking these experiences, you can actually overcome sin in your life. And you can't do it unless you have a new life in you from Christ. So when we start by talking about the Christian life, we have to start with the new birth. And unless this has happened with you, unless the Holy Spirit of God came into your life and changed you and gave you a new life, you can't, the rest that I'm going to say is not going to really matter to you. We have to start with the new birth. And if we have died and risen with Christ, then we can pursue the life of mortification of sin and embracing a fuller experience of life in our own experience. So let me ask you very candidly, have you been born again? Are you a Christian in the sense that Christ's death and his resurrection are personal experiences for you? And as you look at your life, you will say, I am different. I am new. Yes, I have struggles. Yes, I'm dealing with sin. Yes, I have a hard time forgiving. Yes. But there's something that is very different about me, even in the way I see my life. Because God has changed me. And so when I read Colossians, in the first chapters especially, and Paul says something like, God has made you alive. When you read that, you say, God has made me alive. I'm one of those people that God has made alive. When Jesus died, he died for me. And I know that not only intellectually, because I've been told that and it makes sense, but also because I have experienced that rebirth in my own life. Have you been born again? Have you turned to Christ by faith and received his gift of a new life? Have you been given a new life in Christ by God's Holy Spirit. If this is not your experience, I really encourage you to focus on that. You, you can sleep through the rest of my sermon, okay? If you get this part and you turn to Christ by faith, 
I would be so thrilled, and I would say, you heard exactly what I wanted to tell you. But if you have been born again, if you are a new person in Christ, let's talk about how Jesus will change you, how he's going to keep working with us, how he's going to transform us. And we need to talk about it in two ways, in the way that our self is changed and the way our community is changed. So we talked about the new birth. Let's talk about the new self. And this is a rich passage, and, and there are certainly some questions here that you may be asking and maybe some things that are not easy to understand. But the general flow of the passage is very simple. It's very clear. Paul says we are to put off the old self or the old man, the old person, as some of the translations will put it. And we are to put on the new self or the new man, the new person. The idea is very clear here is that we are to get rid of the attitudes and practices connected to our old identity, who we used to be, and we are to embrace the attitudes and practices connected to our new identity in Christ. I think in the background of this passage, and I think it would be helpful for us to read this in light of two other passages, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going to go there now. I'll quote from it a little bit. But if you want to do more study, read Romans 5, read 1 Corinthians 15, and then read Colossians 3. And you will see all sorts of connections. Because I think Paul is thinking the old man, the old person is Adam, and the new person is Christ. I think that's really, this is the framework he brings into helping us understand how to live our lives. It, the choice is really between the old Adam and the new Christ. Are we going to live like we used to live under Adam, or are we going to live differently like we are and can now live under Christ? The contrast here is between the man of earth versus the man of heaven. And that's from 1 Corinthians 15. The fallen man versus the risen man. The disobedient man versus the obedient man. That's Romans 5. The man who brought death versus the man who brings life. The Christian life, then, if we accept this framework, the Christian life consists in rejecting whatever is left from Adam in you and embracing more and more, progressively more and more, what we now have in Christ. In fact, in Romans 13, verse 14, Paul explicitly commands us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's, he means exactly the same thing. Here he says, put on the new self, put on the new person. But in Romans 13, he says, put on Christ. The same reality. Because we've been given this new nature. And the more we put on Jesus, the more we become more like Jesus, the more we become renewed and become the kind of person God wants us to be. Now look with me at verse 10 in our passage in Colossians 3 and verse 10. Paul says, you have put on the new self. So there's something that's already happened. That's conversion. That's the new birth. You have put on the new self. We're already in Christ, which is renewed. So now it's being renewed. There's progressive change. It's renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, this is part of the reason why I'm thinking he has Adam in mind here. Why bring up creation? Because Adam was made in God's image. But this image has been distorted by sin. Jesus comes to restore God's image in us. In fact, Jesus is the image of God. We read that in Colossians, the image of the invisible God. And we are actually becoming more like Jesus. 
The humanity of Jesus is the ideal God has for all humanity. And so we are becoming more and more like him. He's making us again. He's remaking us. He's recreating us again. So we're no longer the fallen man. We're no longer the distorted image of God. But we are now the renewed image of God in Christ as we put on Jesus. When Paul says, put away or put off these phrases you see in our pastors all over the place, he's using the language of taking off a piece of clothing. When we were connected to Adam, our attitudes and practices were sinful. So as if we were wearing this, this robe, this, this clothing on us, our attitudes, our behaviors, our practices were sinful because Adam sinned and he brought sin into the world. So in verse 5, Paul lists what those are. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are sins of the heart. That's what's in us, the evil in us. And in verse 8, Paul lists other things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, plus lying from verse 9. Now, these are the old ways of Adam in which we once walked. So these are sins of the tongue. So both sins of the heart and sins of the tongue make us like Adam. Adam, sin starts in the heart. It comes out in our speech. It comes out in our practices. Now, I think Paul focuses on, on our speech specifically because, as Jesus told us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the sins of the tongue are often the hardest for us to get rid of because there's the purest expression of who we are that comes through our speech. Now, these two lists are not exhaustive, but it gives you a pretty good idea what Adam-like existence is, what sinful existence is. Our heart is sinful, our speech is sinful, our behavior is sinful. Now, though, that we are in Christ, we must take them off, we must put them away and be different. Now, let me tell you a story. My wife isn't here this morning. She's sick today, and so it's probably the best opportunity for me to tell this story. <laughs> so don't tell her, okay? You can tell her. One of our biggest fights in our marriage happened when we were dating. I don't think we were engaged yet, and we had this, we were both in college. We had this great idea. Let's go jogging together. Now, some of your marriages are much more sanctified than mine, and you can take on a challenge like that. We were not prepared for that. We thought, that'd be nice, just a nice jog in the city. We were at Moody in Chicago. It's a beautiful place to run. And so we said, okay, we'll, you know, lived in separate dorms, so we're like, we'll meet at this particular place on campus. We meet, and I show up wearing what could only be described as that little number, I found this, this rainbow-colored hoodie. We had a missionary barrel at, on campus where people would discard clothing they didn't like, and other people, like me, would pick it up and say, this, this looks cool, this is gonna look real nice. So let me describe what I was wearing. Rainbow-colored, bright rainbow-colored hoodie. It was skin-tight. It was laced across the chest. Friends, it was, it was glorious. 
I thought, I thought it looked so good on me. And of course, I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll wear it for my girlfriend. I'm sure she would appreciate that. So we meet, meet up and, uh, you know, ready to, to work out, to, to enjoy each other's company and support each other in pursuit of health. And we fought the whole time we were running. And the reason is because Jillian did not appreciate my sense of fashion. <laughs> and her assumption, rightly so, was, now you're with me, and you can't do that. You can't wear that kind of stuff. <laughs> now that you have this relationship with me, you really need to take care of what, what you wear. And by the way, I'm going to be significantly involved in the decisions of what <laughs> you wear from now on. Now, I was, I was a young man. I was inexperienced in, in the affairs of the heart. I didn't know that, that part of my relationship with her involved a complete makeover of, of, of what I wear and, and what I look like. I know that now, I've embraced that, I've, I've learned. I rarely buy things just on my own anymore. And I'm grateful that I have somebody who will tell me this doesn't look good. And I trust her. But back then I didn't know. But what I learned very quickly that there's a new identity here at place. And because of this relationship with this woman, now I see the world differently. And the world sees me differently. And because I'm connected to her, because now there's this connection, it influences what I wear. It influences what I can, how I can look. Now, it's the same idea here. Because of your relationship with Christ, because of your new identity in Christ, it affects how you talk, what you think, how you feel, what decisions you make, how you behave. Of course, everything is going to be affected because you are now with Christ. You have this new relationship and a new identity. Other people know you're with Christ. And Jesus wants you to act a certain way, to dress a certain way, to talk a certain way. Of course he does. Because who you are and what you look like reflects on him. We are to put on, Paul says, put on compassionate hearts. So if we take off the rainbow hoodie, right? Let's not be naked. Let's put something on. What do we put on? We put on Christ. And so we put on compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then above all, he says, put on love. Let's not forget love. Now, as you look at this list, again, not an exhaustive list, but it gives you a really good idea of what this new life is like. Whose qualities are these? Help me. Whose qualities are these? Jesus. Who, he's compassionate. He's meek, right? He's humble. He's patient, and man, is he loving. And so when we put on him, this is what it looks like. We actually feel like him, we think like him, we act like him. These are his qualities, this is his character. So when you think about the Christian life, when you think about sanctification, is another big word some Christians use, is becoming more holy, you're pursuing practical holiness in your life. When you think about these matters, it's really quite simple. It's like waking up in the morning, you go to the closet or to your, uh, your chest of drawers, and you pick out clothing. And so every morning as a Christian gets up, we make a choice. You look through your clothes and you say, okay, am I going to dress like Adam today? Or am I going to dress like Jesus? What am I putting on? And you look and you say, okay, what do I have here? And there's always, always in the corner that little number you can wear. And you say, no, not today. I'm, 
going to put on compassion. I'm going to put on humility. I'm going to put on meekness and patience and above all, love. That's sanctification. It's really simple when you, when you think of it this way. Am I going to be like Adam or am I going to be like Jesus? So, Christians, when you get up tomorrow morning, today may be too late for you, but hopefully you've made some good decisions this morning, but tomorrow is a new day and you're going to get up and you're going to look in your closet and what are you going to put on? Remember what Jesus has done for you as you make those decisions. Remember that he himself, he himself took off his righteousness and put on your sinfulness. That he put on our sinfulness on himself so that we can have his righteousness by grace. So that we can go into his closet and pick out something to wear for us. And say, I will take Jesus' compassion. I will take his humility today. And it's not as if he tells us, well, you guys, you know, work it out. You make your own clothes. You, you, you go and, and you figure out what you're going to wear. No. He says, you come into my closet. And pick from my clothes, from these robes of righteousness. You pick what you want. Compassion, meekness, and humility, and love. Put it on. So Christians, as you go into your closet next morning, tomorrow morning, find something nice to wear and get dressed as a Christian. Clothe yourself with compassion and cover yourself with kindness and throw on humility and accessorize with meekness. Adorn yourself with patience, and don't forget love. Above all, put on love. Now, when I talk about sanctification in this way, putting off, putting on, it feels to me a little bit warm and fuzzy. You know, there's a little bit of that kind of playfulness here, right? Even the, the words I'm using, the images I'm using, and, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But lest you walk away thinking this is not serious, that this is kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're playing dress up here in some way, lest you think this is not serious, let me take you to another metaphor that Paul is using here. Look at another image in verse 5. Now we're still talking about the new self and the old self. Paul says in verse 5, Put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death. It's a little different. The degree of, of gravity here is different. Not only does Paul say, you know, put away those old clothes and put on the new. He also says, put to death. He says, kill it. Kill sin in your life. Romans 8.13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is, this is not unique to Colossians 3. All over scriptures, there's this idea that we are at war with sin. That sin is killing us. If we're not doing anything about it, sin will kill us. And so we're at war with it. We are supposed to kill it. In 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We are at war with sin. So sanctification must necessarily include 
aggressively opposing sin in your life and intentionally killing it, intentionally eliminating it. Listen to Sam Storms, one of the books that I'm reading, which Pastor Dave gave me. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for this great, great book in Colossians. Sam Storms comments in one of his devotionals. He says, there are only two options when it comes to dealing with sin. You're either reckless or ruthless. Reckless or ruthless. There's no middle ground. To opt for some third possibility is itself a reckless choice. Either we are ruthless in our commitment and efforts to kill sin, lest it be killing us, or we are reckless by default. One doesn't have to make deliberate choices to commit specific sins to be reckless. All one needs to do is fail to take calculated and precise steps to avoid temptation, flee sin at first sight, and treat it as one's mortal enemy. Not to do so is to be reckless, regardless of intent, regardless of stated hatred for sin. What Storms is saying is that there's two options. You can't just not do anything and feel good about it. If you do nothing, sin is going to kill you. And the call of the scriptures is for us to pursue, intentionally to pursue sin and kill it. To be on the offensive, to address specific issues in your life. And to do it aggressively and intentionally. I don't know if how many of you heard of Tom Waits. He's a musician. I, I like him quite a bit. He's, he's, he's a certain feel, okay? So not everybody identifies with his music. It's very atmospheric, kind of haunting kind of songs. This is a line from, from his song that came to my mind when I was thinking about fighting sin. He says, There's nothing strange about an axe with blood stains in the barn. There's always some killing you got to do around the farm. Very atmospheric, haunting song to me. Very, I'm not a farmer, but I imagine this is true. That if you see a blood-stained axe on the farm, yeah, not a big deal, right? That's the kind of life that people live. There's always something to kill, as he says, around the farm. There's always some killing to do in the Christian life. For a Christian, it should be no surprise that we carry a blood-stained axe around us. Because there's always some sin to be killing in your life. Nobody, none of us, nobody, not even the holiest of you, and I know who you are, and I, I look up to you, I do. But even you, there are remnants of Adam in your life. There are remnants of the old nature in your life, and you cannot say, I am done with the killing. There is still more killing of sin to do in your life. I mentioned the term mortification in the beginning. It's an old term. It's a Puritan. I think Puritans use it a lot. But it's in the older translations of the Bible as well. It's a great term to think of in terms of your Christian life. Am I mortifying? Am I killing? Am I putting to death certain sins in my life? I don't think many Christians today see their sanctification as including this kind of aggressing mortification of sin. And I think it's our loss that we don't do that. This year, I'm going to preview our next sermon series and our next season a little bit here, but I'll give you a lot more details as we get closer to it. We will be observing Lent at Chatham uh, this year, and 
And I will, we will do it well. We'll do it in a biblical way. So if you have bad experiences with Lent, I ask for your patience and give us a chance to do it right. Some of you had great experiences with Lent and will actually hear a testimony, I think, in a couple of weeks about somebody who's practiced Lent and really benefited from it. But Lent is not commanded in Scripture. It's not a biblical mandate. Although it is modeled after a particular experience that Jesus had. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days to fight sin, to fight temptation. He purposefully, by the Holy Spirit, was led into the wilderness to deal with the, with the devil and to battle temptation. And so we model our life after his, and we say we need those times too. We need times in our calendar, we need times in our lives where we are purposefully focusing on our lives and taking stock of how we're doing spiritually and saying, I'm going to really address this one issue I've been dealing with. I'm really going to be very specific about my sin, and I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill it with God's help. So we'll be going through a sermon series uh, that will deal with specific sins that most of us will be able to identify with. And we're going to look at specific weapons that God gives us in the gospel to conquer them. So some of you this morning, you may come to church with a heavy heart knowing that you have failed and there's a sin in your life you just have such a hard time overcoming. God has resources for you to do it. And as you focus on that particular sin, and that's what the mortification comes in, right? That sin is not just going to dissipate in the cloud of holiness. It's not how it works. You need to focus and you need to kill it. And God gives you weapons to do that. And we'll work through that together. We'll, we'll help each other. We'll have prayer meetings that will go along with these topics to help us really process it and apply it. So I encourage you to be open as we go into the season of Lent in a couple weeks. Now, let's talk about, lastly, about the new community, my last point here. So for most of us, I would say, let me just stereotype us and say, for most of us, when we think of sanctification and spiritual growth, we seem to take it in very personal terms. I am growing in Christ. I am addressing my issues. God is growing me. My character is changing. I am becoming more holy. And there is a lot of truth in that. It has to be personal. It has to be individual. But it is much wider than that. Paul's idea of sanctification, based on, on Colossians 3, while it is personal, it is also communal. Many of the qualities that are commanded here, commanded that we need to put them off, we need to kill them, we need to put them away, they only make sense in relationships. For example, you can't put away lying just by yourself because you're lying to someone unless you're just lying to yourself. What about sexual immorality, right? Usually it has to do with other people. What about slander? Hmm, slandering someone. So these examples show us that some of these old qualities of Adam have to do not so much with just us individually, but they affect our relationships and they they manifest themselves in our relationships and our community. So for us to kill them, for us to address them, we have to see them in the corporate context. These old attitudes and old practices are played out in community with others in the church. So the old community of Adam is marked by sinful attitudes and practices. In Adam, we manipulate each other. We use each other. 
we uh, neglect or hurt others if it suits us. But in Christ, not only have we been transformed as individuals, we've been transformed as a community of people. So in Christ, we're called to be compassionate. Well, how can you be compassionate unless you have someone to show that mercy to? Someone who needs your compassion, somebody who needs you to be patient with them. Paul says you need to bear with one another and forgive each other. How can we do that unless we practice it with one another in the church, with people that we know? Please note that all these relational communal aspects are still presented and they're interspersed in the context of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. These are not separate things for Paul. He's not saying, now go back to your prayer closet and you work on yourself and then everything will be fine and then now let's talk about community. He mixes it. Because sanctification, when God is working with us, when we're changing, it's not only going to be that I have gotten holier, but we have gotten holier. It's not only that I am more like Jesus today, but that we collectively, we collectively are more like Jesus today. Part of sanctification, killing sin and growing in holiness, according to this passage, must happen in community with other people. Our relationships show our practical progress in holiness. Let's come to terms with this a little bit, okay? I almost feel like I need to pause and just give you time to think through this. Because when, when I was working through it myself, I realized how much I had been preconditioned to think about spiritual growth as something that I can do within myself. But when I come to Scripture, when I come to this passage, it's impossible to do that. Paul says it happens in context of community. And it shows in community. It's as if you show up to church, but you act nothing like everybody else. People are going to notice that. And hopefully they're going to help you. And hopefully we all start helping each other and growing together in Christ. You know, I thought of this example when uh, in baseball or any other sport, when, when players get traded or they sign a new contract and they show up to their new team. I've noticed none of them wear their old uniform. To, you know, I thought of like Dexter Fowler when, when he came to the Cardinals a couple of years ago. He didn't show up to spring training in a Cubs uniform. That would have been terrible, right? It's incomprehensible, and yet so many of us, friends, now please be patient with me, but also hear me, so many of us show up to church in our old uniforms. We act like Adam when we're supposed to act like Christ. And part of the change that needs to happen is we need to together be changing into the image of Christ. Now, I'm going to make even more uncomfortable now, so hold on a second. I've already mentioned the, one of the greatest rivalries, as I've learned very quickly when I moved here, between the Cubs and the Cardinals. Let me show you some other rivalries that are resolved in the church. Look at verse 11. Now, this is all in context of sanctification. Verse 11, Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is saying is that the newness of life, our sanctification, our spiritual growth, 
is exhibited in unity and harmony among various groups in the church. The groups that typically don't get along in the world are supposed to get along in the church precisely because we're being changed into the image of Christ. Because we have things like compassion and meekness and humility. We have power to forgive each other. We have power to bear with one another. And that means when you can't forgive anymore, you keep bearing with people. It's hard, but you keep doing it because we have this, this new life in us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. One commentator puts it this way, our world is crossed and recrossed by barriers of one kind and another. And our life is scarred by the animosities cherished by one side against the other. But in Christ, these barriers must come down. Iron curtains, color bars, class distinctions, national and cultural divisions, political and sectarian partisanship. I think he's writing in the 60s, but it applies just, just as much to us today. He said, look at the world. You see the world in terms of who's against whom. But in Christ, but in the church, it shouldn't be that way. Our new life exhibits itself in all these different groups actually coming together in the same congregation and worshiping and serving God together and loving and forgiving each other. He lists Greeks and Jews, which is the obvious one. What's the obvious one today? Blacks and whites. That's the obvious one today. If Paul is writing today, he would use black and white people together in the church. Back in his days, Greeks and Jews, so many cultural differences, so many ethnic differences. Then he adds circumcised and uncircumcised, circumcised Jews, uncircumcised Gentiles, not just the Greeks, but it's broader than that. And yet they worship together in unity in the same church. There are not only the refined Greeks that can get along with the Jews, also the wild barbarians. And barbarians were, you know, Greeks were pretty self-aware of their own level of culture. And so they were the Greeks, and they spoke Greek, and they learned philosophy, and they ruled the world. And then there were the barbarians. They were outside. They are outside the Greek territory. Those are the people who didn't understand. They didn't know how to think. They didn't know how to talk. had no culture. And Paul says, those people are now with the Greeks in the church. But he goes even further than that. I love that he throws in Scythian in here. Do you know who Scythians, I can't pronounce the word very well, but do you know who they are, who they were? Nomadic tribes that actually lived what is now the modern Ukraine. So they're kind of my people in a little bit here, okay? <laughs> Those guys, not only the Greeks didn't like them, the barbarians didn't like them either. So they were another level down. So when a Greek would say, we don't like the barbarians, but we definitely don't like the Scythians, he wouldn't even put them in the category of the barbarians. Those are the unreached people. They're just so, so far away and so far away from the Greek culture that you couldn't imagine them being in the same church as the Greeks and the Jews. And yet Paul says, the way we know that new life is really working, that we're being sanctified, is that you go to church, you go to a, to a congregation, and you see the Jews and the Greeks, and that's pretty amazing. And then you see the barbarians, and even the Scythians are there. Those are ethnic, cultural distinction. And then he goes into 
economic distinctions, right? The slaves and free people are there too. I mean, that's, that's just crazy. This is undoubtedly the only place, the only community in the ancient world where you would see the masters and their slaves together. Come into the same table, drink it from the same cup. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that that actually happened. And Paul says, this is how we know that this community, that this church is being sanctified. That they're actually growing in Christ. They're being changed. They're killing sin. See, they're killing those old attitudes that they've learned from childhood. That to be Greek is better to, than to be a barbarian. That to be Jewish is better than being Greek. All those attitudes that they knew and they had and they held on to now are being killed by the gospel in the church. Now, this is what it means practically. Somebody comes to you and asks you, is God working in your life? How do I know? How do you know that God is active, that God is there, that God is real? This is what you need to tell them. Now, listen carefully to me. This is what you tell them. You say, come to church with me. And as you come, look at my church. We're not lying to each other. We are compassionate toward one another. We love each other. And look, we have rich and poor worshiping side by side. We have African American and Caucasian in the same congregation loving each other and working together for the cause of Christ. We have all these different people coming to the communion table every week, and we even have a Scythian for a pastor. <laughs> if you can say that, imagine the impact it would have on your neighbors. If not only that they're looking at you and they're saying, I see Christ in this person. I mean, that is so important, and I hope that it's true of us. That individually, as people look at us, they would say, he is more patient than I expect. He, he has more meekness and he has more humility. I hope that people think that of me and, and of you. But there's also another level of that where they can think that of us as a congregation. Where they can look at us and see how we relate to each other. Who is here and who's not here is very important. How can this happen? I'm going to finish by giving you these three weapons very quickly, and then I'm, I'm going to be in my seat, okay? So first, this, these are the tools that Paul gives us. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So how do you reach this kind of unity? How do you reach this kind of new life communally? You need the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. This, as much as we can take this verse to say, I have peace of Christ in my heart, and peace of Christ reigns in my heart, that's fine. That's true of, of a Christian. This is talking about a community. It's talking about peace of Christ, meaning the result of his work on the cross, the reconciliation that he accomplished for us, actually ruling in the community. This word rule means to arbitrate, to decide on matters, to oversee. So in other words, the way I treat someone else as a church is arbitrated, is controlled by what Christ has done on the cross. And because Christ has reconciled me to God and reconciled us to each other, this is how I see you. This is why, of course, I'll be patient with you because God is patient with me in Christ. Of course, I'm going to forgive you because God has forgiven me in Christ. And we forgive as Christ forgives us. 
Of course I'm going to love you because God is tremendously loving and we see it on the cross. We don't love him, but only because he loved us first and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. We are patient because God's grace is poured out on us from the cross. That's the peace of Christ. Secondly, the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell, dwell richly in you. This is verse 16. The word of Christ is his gospel. It's the message of what he's done. It's his scriptures. And if we take him at his word, if we could only take him at his word, if we just took what he tells us and say, this is how I'm going to see reality, of course we're going to treat each other differently. How does the word of Christ dwell in our church? Through two specific ministries, the ministry of teaching and the ministry of praise. Yes, we are to speak the word to each other. And by the way, both ministries could be governed and led by pastors. But all of us need to participate in those ministries. We're to admonish each other. We're to sing songs together. We need to sing songs to one another. So the ministry of teaching and the ministry of praise in the church as we speak and as we sing actually allows the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. And finally, the third weapon. So you have the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and then you have the name of the Lord Jesus in verse 17. We must see our lives as submitted to the cause of Christ. We are under his authority and we represent him. So when we are thinking about each other and when I'm considering how to respond to what you told me or what you did, my primary concern is how do I represent Christ in this situation? How do I do this? How do I handle this under his authority and in his name? And so as we come to the communion table, I urge you to take this passage seriously. Put off the old, put on the new, kill sin, cultivate holiness, individually, yes, but also corporately. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell richly and do everything in the name of Christ.